So as as you and I both know, Jason, the majority of the people we talk to are men wrongfully incarcerated. But when we do talk to women, I actually haven't talked to many women who were mothers. They were locked up before being mothers. Have you experienced a lot of women you've talked to trying to navigate motherhood through prison? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a, a rough one. I, I can't even begin to imagine severing that bond between mother and child and taking that caregiver away from the child that they love, that they birthed, that they have a primal need to care for. I honestly don't know how any mother goes through that and doesn't lose her mind. And I kept answering the same questions over and over. Nothing to eat, nothing to drink, no sleep. All I could think about is who has the kids? Where are they? What is going on with them? From Lava for Good, I'm Maggie Freeling, and this is Wrongful Conviction with Maggie Freeling. Today, Patty Pruitt. In the early hours of February 18, 1984, Patty Pruitt was awakened by a loud noise. Someone then pulled her hair to drag her out of bed, and she was raped in the dark. After the intruder left, she heard her husband Bill making gurgling noises, as if he were struggling to breathe. She was unable to turn on the lights in the house, so she grabbed her kids and ran to a neighbor's to call 911. She would later learn Bill had been shot in the head and died. When the police arrived at their home, they overlooked critical evidence from the scene. Instead, the police paid attention to Patty's collection of murder mystery novels and Bill's life insurance policy. Patty, not wanting to draw attention to herself in the face of her husband's death, never mentioned she was raped. By 9 a.m. that morning, neighbors were already getting calls about Bill's murder. And word was, his wife Patty had killed him. Police found out that she was the beneficiary of Bill's life insurance policy, and that years earlier, she had some sexual relationships outside of her marriage. These discoveries became the motive for the police and prosecution, and Patty was arrested, charged, and convicted of capital murder. But key evidence about Patty's innocence never came out during the trial. And decades later, Patty, who is now a great-grandmother, feels her chance at freedom is quickly dwindling. I'm an old lady. I'm 72. I've been in prison way too long. I'm the oldest of my siblings, and I'm the only one alive. I was just looking out the window, and there was a buzzard out there circling. And I was wondering if he's circling because I'm getting ready to die. I'm Patty Pruitt, and uh, geez, I'm a prisoner in Missouri and have been for nearly 36 years. I did not kill my husband. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. 
Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gigillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. Patricia Pruitt was born on July 3rd, 1949, to Frank and Ann Slaughter. She grew up on a 640-acre farm in Lone Jack, Missouri, 30 miles from Kansas City. It was um, like a cattle ranch. We, all, we had horses. It was multi-generational. My grandparents, our family, my uncle and his kids, and uh, it, was, it was wonderful. It was absolutely wonderful. And how about your parents? They were so in love. Daddy saw my mama when she was in eighth grade, and he saw her somewhere downtown in this little town, and he told his brother that when that girl grows up, I'm going to marry her. Patty and Bill met when they were in middle school, but at that time, they were polar opposites. She was one of the uh, jocks and cool kids, and my best friend Nancy and I were complete nerds. She says it wasn't until senior year of high school when they had a class together that they became close. And uh, hit it off and never looked back. Tell me what it was about him that you loved. He was so sweet, just very sweet. Of course, he was handsome. That's always a plus. And kind and smart as a whip and came from good people, as my mom and dad would say. That was always a prerequisite in our family. And so her family accepted him, she says. And Bill loved coming out to the country to visit, despite what would happen. And we were evil to him. We put him on the worst horse we had. and We did all kinds of horrible things to him. But he still stuck it out. So. <laughs> in 1968, at just 19, Patty and Bill got married. It was the height of the Vietnam War, and the draft was active. Although the special exemption for married men was no longer in place at the time, 
Patty says she and Bill got married in hopes that it could still keep him from going off to war. They tried to use every exemption that existed so he could stay, including college and kids. After they married, Patty's father gave them a small house on three acres of land in Lone Jack, Missouri, and they opened a lumberyard business. In 1969, they welcomed their first child, Jane. Life with my parents was great. You know, her and dad were both very involved parents. Uh, both of them, I remember that they were really hardworking, but really quick to laugh, that they were both really funny people, and that they loved music, they loved dancing, like we, we just had a lot of fun together all the time. You know, you remember things as a kid, like that my dad would pat my mom on the bottom when she'd be cooking dinner. You could say they were living the American dream. That is, until 1974. That's when Patty was raped for the first time. A decade before Bill's murder, Patty says she was walking to the park and was grabbed by three men. They dragged her behind some bushes where they all raped her. When a woman walked by, the men quickly ran away. Patty and the woman agreed not to call the police because of the stigma. In those days, nobody had counseling and nobody told stuff. You uh, kept it to yourself. You just did not tell. Because not only is it embarrassing, it's just awful. Who wants to talk about a horrible thing, you know? So we just decided not to talk about it. But Patty did tell Bill. She says he was helpful and sweet at first, but then things changed. Bill became standoffish. I think from Bill's point of view, he was supposed to protect me, protect me and the kids, and to have something horrible happen like that, he felt guilt. I felt guilt because I was wearing a little sundress. It's a horrible thing, and you don't want to talk about it. Nobody wants to talk about it what happens, and then you just get farther and farther and farther away from each other. And then it gets worse and worse, and, and then how do you reach back? Their happy marriage crumbled under the weight of what had happened, and so Patty and Bill decided to separate. And so it was kind of convenient as far as not having to tell the family what was going on for us to be separated. Because they had just bought a new farm. Patty says. So now they had two places to live. And Bill lived at the original place, and the kids and I moved to the new place, and uh, everybody thought he was just working on the house, but we were actually separated and uh, kind of discussing maybe divorce. During this time, by mutual consent, they were both seeing other people. When you're living apart and you're not part of each other's lives, it just seems like this natural thing to, you're not sleeping together. So you guys agreed, you know, we're separated, we're living apart, we can see other people. Right. In 1977, Patty became pregnant with another man's child. Breaking this news to Bill shattered her. It was horrible. I mean, really horrible. That really wasn't part of our agreement. But he, uh, God, Bill was so sweet. He loved children. And uh, we certainly were not going to uh, not have the baby. And uh, 
I told him, I said, it's up to you whether I do this single or we do this together. So uh, how do we want to do this? And I think it was kind of like the, the, um, the breaking point as far as we did love each other and we did want to have our family together. That was when uh, we just kind of came to the agreement that we would come back together as a family and uh, work this out. And they did. Later that year, June 1977, baby Morgan was born. And uh, Bill didn't treat him like he was anything but his own child. By now, Patty and Bill were raising five kids. Having their family back together made Patty feel like everything was right in the world. When I look back, I think we were so blithely fine. I mean, we had ball teams, we were coaching the kids, our business was doing good. All our kids were smart and good looking. And uh, everything was good. Our problems were small problems, you know, nothing serious, nothing you can't get through. Patty and Bill had no idea what was about to come crashing down on their family. We were all kids. Our kids were growing up with Bill and me. And uh, then, boom, it's all over. It's all over. This episode is underwritten by AIG, a leading global insurance company. AIG is committed to corporate social responsibility and to making a positive difference in the lives of its employees and in the communities where we work and live. In light of the compelling need for pro bono legal assistance and in recognition of AIG's commitment to criminal and social justice reform, the AIG pro bono program provides free legal services and other support to underrepresented communities and individuals. On February 18th, 1984, Bill and Patty went out to a barbecue at their friend's house. And then they all went out to a bar for a little while, and Patty and Bill got home around 2 a.m. Their oldest daughter, Jane, was at a friend's house, and the rest of the kids were fast asleep in bed. Patty tidied up some dishes the kids had left in the sink, and then she joined Bill, who had already climbed into bed. Shortly after, Patty was awakened by what she thought was thunder. She says she was then pulled out of bed by her hair and raped. But it was dark, and she couldn't see the man. After the intruder left, she heard Bill making gurgling noises, struggling to breathe. But the lights wouldn't turn on, and the phone wasn't working. She couldn't see Bill, and she couldn't call the police. She quickly woke the kids up and ran with them to a neighbor's house to call 911. Specifically, she headed for the home of Cliff Gustin, a former police officer. When we got to the neighbor's house, went in the bathroom and uh, I put on one of her sanitary napkins because I was bleeding. But after that, Patty says she quickly forgot about her attack and focused on Bill and her children. The kids were distraught. Everybody's going crazy. And it seemed like not a time for me to even say anything. 
about me, and I never even uh, never even thought about me anymore. Well, I imagine you were, you know, as a mother to five kids, you were probably in survival mode. Oh, definitely. Definitely. I was certainly secondary. When you're a mama, you're pretty much secondary 24-7. I can't even explain how my brain didn't even work. It was like there was a buzzing in my head and nothing made any sense except... uh, taking care of the kids. That was the only thing that made any sense whatsoever. When the police arrived, they found that the breaker panel to the entire house's power had been switched off. They turned the power back on. However, police records show they did not take any fingerprints from the breaker panel, nor did they take any other fingerprint evidence from the home or ask Patty if she had been hurt. They instead took note of Patty's collection of murder mystery novels and Bill's life insurance policy. They did find a box of 22 caliber rounds in the house, the same kind of bullets used to kill Bill. And Patty told police that Bill actually had two guns in the house, but the police could only find one. Eventually, the second gun, a 22, what they presumed was the murder weapon, would be recovered in a shallow pond on the Pruitt property. Later that night, Patty was interrogated at the police station by Detective Kevin Hughes, the lead investigator. And uh, he said he wanted to uh, swab my hands for uh, nitrate to see if he fired a firearm, a gun. And I was like, oh, yeah. But as he's swabbing my hands, I'm thinking, well, why would he want to swab my hands? And that was kind of when I went. In my head, I was like, oh, my God, he's not even listening to me about those murder. He's not paying any attention to me at all. The gun residue test came back negative. By this time, standard procedure would dictate that Patty should have had a rape kit because she did tell the police the man in the house, who presumably killed Bill, had pulled down her pants and was struggling with his belt. But remember, she never said she was actually raped. Detectives did, however, collect her pajamas she was wearing. He started asking me about insurance and things like that. Then I was like, oh my God, this is, nobody's paying attention to me. They're not paying attention to what I have to say. It went on and on and on. It, 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 it becomes to a point where you don't even know what you're saying. Detective Hughes and his investigators immediately started digging into Patty's life. After they found out about what they called her, quote, affairs and, quote, infidelity, they seemed set with this aspect of her personal life as a motive. After less than a day of investigating, Detective Hughes announced that Patty Pruitt was the lead suspect in her husband Bill's murder. Two days later, on February 20th, Patty was again questioned, this time for about 16 hours. Only 15 minutes of the interview was actually recorded. It was like some kind of torture thing. Nothing to eat, nothing to drink, no sleep. All I could think about is 
who has the kids, where are they, what is going on with them, and they kept asking me the same stupid questions, and I kept answering the same questions over and over, and then they would trade places, and they would scream at me, and then they'd come in and go, the nice, you know, we can make this okay, all you have to do is confess, and it'll all go away, we'll understand. Did you know that you could ask for a lawyer? No. No, I had no idea what was. Nobody, this may sound crazy, nobody in my family had ever been so much as pulled over, arrested, or anything, uh, ever. Patty was arrested that day and charged with capital murder. She was released on bond awaiting trial. And as she and the children struggled to adjust to the loss of their husband and father, things only got worse. Patty was harassed with anonymous phone calls, threats, and robberies. She noticed strange people wandering on her property, and she even found three of her dogs dead on a nearby farm, apparently poisoned. When she got a new dog, he was hung by his collar. Patty was virtually branded with a scarlet letter by the community, considered both an adulteress and a murderer. Patty was offered a plea deal that would reduce her charges to six or seven years, but she refused it, saying she didn't want to be taken from her children. She insisted she was innocent. The trial started on April 16th, 1985. Patty's family, children, and friends, as well as Bill's relatives, all attended. Tom Williams was the prosecutor, and due to the lack of evidence against Patty, he instead emphasized that she was an adulteress and used sexist tropes and gender biases to paint Patty out to be a horrible woman and mother who would kill her husband. The cornerstone of the case, the opening statement of the of the prosecution is, you know, this was a mo- woman motivated by lust and greed. This is Patty's attorney, Brian Reichart. He first came across Patty's case in 2010 when he was in law school. And it stuck with him. You know, when I first read the the trial transcript, I, I was disturbed, and I, I thought, you know, there very well could be a a wrongful conviction here. But over the years, as I've learned more about the case, as I've been able to study the investigators' records, as I've I've been able to read accounts from the prosecutor who prosecuted this case, I've become convinced that this is indeed a wrongful conviction and something that needs to be addressed. Brian says one of the key facts to pay attention to in this case is that Patty's 16-hour interview with Detective Hughes was not recorded. Again, only the first 15 minutes were. And he says this freed Hughes to be able to put forth his version of what Patty supposedly told him. Because it was unrecorded, the lead investigator is able to take the stand and, and characterize the interview. And, and so he says things like, oh, you know, I asked her about why she had these affairs. And she says, oh, my, my sexual engine is hotter than most. Did you say that? Nobody, no woman in the face of the earth ever said that. <laughs> I mean, really. Certainly no woman who's being interrogated the murder of her husband ever said anything like that. The fact that he said that 
they would think, does he read romance novels or something? What the? Another thing Detective Hughes alleges Patty said over the course of the investigation. Did you invite him to dinner before you went to prison? Oh, my God. He was so mean to me. No, I did not. I mean, to dinner? I just wanted to get home to my kids. If I never saw him again, I would have been more than happy. According to the trial transcripts, here are some of the phrases used by Prosecutor Williams during the trial to attack Patty's character. Quote, The defendant was motivated by sheer greed and sexual lust and had been for years. Quote, She disregarded her marital vows and the noticeable obligations of motherhood. Quote, She pursued one sleazy affair after another, one, two at a time. Williams even called three of Patty's former partners to testify against her. Two of them eventually said that they were coerced by the police and prosecution to do so. And these were partners she had while she and Bill were separated and knew that the other person was seeing other people and agreed to it. Partners she had five years before Bill's murder. I mean, if you just take a step back, the state had to argue that a mother of five was going to would kill her husband. And, and what kind of what kind of person would do that? The state decided that the way they were going to move the jury is to paint this mother as a bad mother and an unfaithful wife. And so that was so much of their case. Patty's daughter, Sarah, who was 13 years old at the time, testified that as she was leaving the house that night, she saw a flashlight under the basement stairs and heard someone moving around down there. But her testimony seemed to hold little weight against Prosecutor Williams's case. He also called pathologist James Bridgens to review the autopsy. Bridgens and his testimonies would later become discredited on multiple occasions. For example, in 1990, when he had ruled in a case that a woman was stabbed to death, well, later x-rays showed that she was actually shot four times. Patty's attorneys, meanwhile, never called their own expert to refute his findings. Any potential evidence from Patty's pajamas was never brought up. The defense also did not acknowledge that her alleged affairs were in fact known and agreed to by Bill at the time. Now you might be wondering why Patty never screamed from the roof that this was all consensual. Well, it was Patty's decision. She insisted to her attorneys that she did not want Bill criticized in front of their kids, whether it hurt her or not. She did not want them to know that Bill also had affairs and that they both knew about each other's relationships. She figured it was bad enough the whole town was already gossiping about their mom. I didn't want the kids to think badly about him. I didn't want his family to feel badly about him. He wasn't there to uh, defend his position. I don't know. I just didn't think it was anybody's doggone business. He was such a good guy. He doesn't... He deserved to have any black next to him. And her own rape during the murder was also never mentioned during the trial. Because remember, she never told the police about it. All she told them was that the intruder held something to her throat, tried to unbuckle his pants while her pants were down, but fled. One of the things they, they argued against, you know, Patty's account that she was attacked. And one of the arguments the prosecutor made, you know, in front of the jury was... 
this is a direct quote from the case, why would he do this to enjoy Patty's oft-enjoyed sexual favors? Patty didn't tell the police about her rape the night of Bill's murder, but she did tell her attorneys about it. She also told them to keep it out of court and out of earshot from her kids. However, Patty's daughter Jane says she noticed evidence of the assault days later when they were getting ready for Bill's funeral. And that morning, mom didn't want me to come in the bathroom. Like she's kind of pushing against the door and I didn't understand what was happening. And I pushed and then I saw her and she was so horribly bruised. Her hip bones, her thighs, the inside of her thighs. And I assumed that the police knew this or saw her body or that her friends or our family. But they didn't. A rape kit was never done. And that crucial evidence is gone forever. And even though I was 14, I thought of her as being much bigger than me. And that morning, I remember thinking she's not that big. Like she seemed small to me. And she'd been hurt. Jane never testified, but her sister Sarah, the one who saw the light under the basement, did. If you look at the women's accounts... It's interesting how the voices of women in this case were, were ignored and, and the voices of men, even when there was reason to, to be suspicious of those arguments, they were raised as truth. The trial lasted four days. At the end, the jury was deadlocked. They were told to go back and try harder. They eventually came back with a unanimous guilty verdict and Patty was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole but after 50 years. She's eligible in 2036 when she'll be 86 years old. When the verdict came, everybody just lost it. I mean, the judge was telling us all to be quiet. Nobody wanted to be quiet. My brothers and sisters were just screaming, just screaming. And one of my sisters ran out, out of the courthouse into the street. Like... It was a really traumatic time. I don't think that any of us could have been emotionally prepared to be there for that and hear the verdict. And, and to hear 50 years, life with no parole for 50 years, that was just unbelievable. Was there anything in their relationship or from your memory that would indicate to you that your mother would murder your father? No, no. Not, not at all. I, they, um, I, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> like, you know, they were really good friends and they seemingly had a lot of fun together. And I think that when things were tense, um, even when they were younger, when we were all young, that they worked it out. And, you know, she was not that kind of person at all. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career 
And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. The lead investigator made a decision very early on that Patty was the prime suspect and that colored the way he conducted the investigation and he led the investigation. This is Patty's attorney, Brian Reichardt, again, talking about Detective Hughes. Even before trial, he says things went horribly wrong with Patty's investigation. And one of the primary things we've seen is this concept of tunnel vision. When a lead investigator gets it in their head that somebody is the prime suspect and focuses all of their energy on confirming that suspicion and ignoring everything else. You know, if you knew there were areas like the breaker box that cut off the electricity to the house, you know, you know whoever committed this crime touched that, you know, you would dust that for prints and lift prints. They didn't do that. Uh, you would collect hair. They didn't do that. You would, um, you would follow leads. For example, you know, Patty's daughter shared an account of, of seeing a light from the basement when they were leaving the house. And so that would indicate somebody's in the basement. There's no evidence that they followed up on that report from, from Patty's daughter. And also, one of the neighbors had tried to issue a report with the sheriff's office stating she had seen a suspicious vehicle parked on the wrong side of the road facing the Pruitt home hours before the murder. But it was ignored. So this information was never disclosed to the defense. And again, this is rural Missouri, so it's, it's abnormal for there to be a car in the middle of the night that the neighbors don't know about. The lead investigator did nothing about this. One of the most bizarre things about Patty's case is that in 2016, decades after her conviction, a book written by the lead prosecutor, Tom Williams, was published called Practice to Deceive. Williams had died two years before. His book came out after his death. Now, the book does not say Patty is innocent, but it does criticize what Williams acknowledges was a shoddy investigation. And Williams boasts that if it were not for his own prosecutorial skills, Patty would be free right now. He describes sloppy evidence management. He describes a forensic uh, expert who was a star witness as a, as a doctor cop. He describes how how he gratuitously asked questions of Patty on the stand to portray her as a bad mother, to move the jury. I mean, he admits this. 
he's, he's affirming everything we're saying about tunnel vision. And Williams also discusses Detective Hughes. He describes this investigator as an ambitious, young, I mean, I think he was 27, deputy sheriff who had ambitions to move up and he needed a, a case with a lot of interest where he could take the lead and get publicity. That's the words of the prosecutor. And he did. Hughes went on to become a private detective in Wyoming. He later resigned following an internal investigation into his conduct. Up until 2017, crucial evidence in this case was presumed to be lost. This included Patty's pajamas. And once this evidence was uncovered, Patty's team petitioned the courts to test her pajamas for DNA, along with other evidence. Remember, DNA testing was not available in 1984, the year of the crime. A hearing was granted by Judge Robert L. Kaufman. And it was an extraordinary moment because as, as we're making this argument, the judge, who uh, was a different judge than the, the trial judge, uh, didn't work on Patty's case but was still in the, in the courtroom at the time of the trial. He says, oh, I remember this case because uh, I remember she testified that her sexual engine burns hotter than others. I remember that. That's what makes this case unique. And I, that was just an astounding moment for a number of reasons. It goes to show the impact that misogyny had on Patty's case even decades later. Judge Kaufman quickly denied the request, writing, quote, you cannot believe her story and DNA findings of any kind do not change that fact. In other words, Kaufman believed that because of Patty's alleged promiscuity, the presence of DNA on Patty's pajamas would not necessarily confirm that she was raped or that she wasn't the murderer. He also notes, quote, it should be kept in mind there were numerous showings that Miss Pruitt was not a truth teller. Patty's legal team says there were other people in the community who could have had motive, means, and opportunity and may have wanted Bill out of the picture. Bill and Patty were active in their community and, and what we've heard from folks who lived in, in Holden at the time was there was concerns about drugs and uh, Patty and Bill as, as parents of kids were concerned about their kids and started to look into what was going on in their community with the drug trade. Police did not thoroughly investigate this or other leads, including the unknown car that Patty's neighbor had seen on the street. DNA testing might have helped Patty's case, but by now, Patty has exhausted her appeals. Her only hope is clemency. Patty has applied for clemency multiple times. Her petition from December of 2010 is still waiting a response from Missouri Governor Mike Parson. It is one of more than 3,000 clemency petitions he has yet to review. While she waits, Patty and her family have had 36 years to process their losses, including the death of Patty's son, Matt, in 1992, when he was just 18. His death was ruled a suicide. And at the same time Patty lost her kids when she was sent to prison, they also lost their mother. You know, when you're 16, you're going through the most formative time of your life, you know, boyfriends or, or girlfriends or whoever and periods and those kinds of things. I mean, who did you go to for that? Mostly mom's sister, my Aunt Mary, who has since passed. She was great about all those kind of things, which was, which was great. But 
she was also, you know, young. Mom was only 36 when she left for prison. And Mary would have been 33. And she was a single mom with two little boys. So she had a lot on her plate also. Right. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. So you kind of, uh, you know, even if you have people in your life, you still kind of feel like you're a burden when it's not your parents taking care of you. And since Patty was unable to be a parent to her own kids, she became a proxy mom for young women in prison. Well, the truth of the matter is, I'm a mama at my core. And when I came to prison, I was 36, and most kids in prison are much younger, so I came in as an adult. And if if you can't help people, what's the use of being alive? You know, she has every right to be angry at the world. You know, she's lost so much. Uh, She obviously lost her husband. She effectively lost her children. Just in the last 12 years, I've seen her lose her father, her mother, her sister, and her brother. And obviously, she lost her son years earlier. She hasn't been able to go to any of those funerals. Um, And just the, the pain that she's been through. And as I said, she has every right to be angry at the world. And and what is she doing? She's mothering and mentoring generations of women behind bars and and women who are doing well now and they credit Patty. And it's really, it's it's awe-inspiring and it's, um, it's extraordinary. Many of the women Patty has met in prison credit her with their rehabilitation and ability to pursue their dreams. In a video created by Patty's legal team, these women urge Governor Parson to grant Patty clemency. Patty never stopped believing in me. She always encouraged me to, to write, to improve myself, to exercise, to just simply do the next right thing and believe in myself. She changed my entire life, and I was a repeat offender not looking to be anything but. If she could do that for me, imagine what she can do for the world. the only way these kids are ever going to be somebody and get out of this endless loop of incarceration is to believe in themselves and and realize that they're good people and they deserve a good life. And if that's why I'm in this damn place, then I will try to save as many of these kids as I can. (sighs) Who's your cheerleader, Patty? When you're helping everybody and being the mama, who's there for you? Listen, I'm a big girl. I'm an adult. So (laughs) helping them is what helps me. If I didn't have these kids around me, good Lord, I'm an old lady. I know all the new songs. I know the new dances. I mean, these kids keep me young. Despite her circumstances, Patty has made the best of it. I'm a student in Washington University out of St. Louis. That is still is amazing to me that this opportunity has come to me. Patty says she's committed to one day getting her bachelor's degree. And if she gets out of prison, she also has a lot more planned. And I've got all these kids and grandkids. And I've got a book I'm writing. I know there's lots of books out there by prisoners. But I would like to let especially women know what prison's like. People keep adding money to uh, coffers. To build prisons, it's not doing any good. It's 
it's just the opposite. And I would love to lobby. Uh, they would hate me at the Capitol because I would be such a pest. <laughs> So yeah, I'm going to cause some problems. That's what that's my goal. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing better than an old lady wreaking havoc. Hey, amen to that, sister. <laughs> amen to that. <laughs> If you have any information about this case or want to help Patty, go to pattypruitt.com. On our next episode, how does a guy with 19 alibi witnesses get convicted for murder? It didn't matter what I had to say, what type of evidence, the alibis that I, that I had to present, it just, it just didn't matter. All they wanted was to get in an arrest. Next time on Wrongful Conviction with Maggie Freeling, Melvin Ortiz. Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction with Maggie Freeling. Please support your local innocence organizations and go to the links in our bio to see how you can help. I'd like to thank executive producers Jason Flom, Kevin Burtis, as well as our senior producer Annie Chelsea, researcher Lila Robinson, and story editor Sonia Paul, with additional production by Jeff Clyburn. Music in this production is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction, on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast, and on Twitter at Wrongful Conviction, as well as Lava for Good on all three platforms. You can also follow me on both Instagram and Twitter at Maggie Freeling. Wrongful Conviction with Maggie Freeling is a production of Lava for Good Podcasts in association with Signal Company Number 1. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, You can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.